On today's show, we speak with a grassroots advocacy expert whose organization created a map that has sent over 4 million advocacy emails in its first two years. Now that is some advocacy production. Stay tuned as we learn more. Participate, engage, speak out, use your voice to be an effective advocate. The Voices in Advocacy podcast examines the diverse landscape of advocacy, exploring the ins and outs of building influence, driving change, and creating champion advocates. It's now time for the Voices in Advocacy podcast with your host, Roger Rickard. Good day, folks. I hope you're enjoying season three of the Voices in Advocacy podcast. I'm Roger Rickard, president and founder of Voices in Advocacy, where we work with organizations to inspire, educate, engage, and activate their supporters by turning them into effective, influential advocates. And this is the podcast dedicated to the art of advocacy. This podcast is for the people that work and engage in advocacy efforts for corporations, associations, trade organizations, and nonprofit cause groups. On today's show, we speak with Kristen Prather, the State Director Grassroots Programs at the Credit Union National Association known as CUNA. Kristen has been a grassroots professional working at CUNA since 2008. In her role as State Director of Grassroots Programs, she works with credit union advocates to advance credit union priorities at the state and federal level. Now, here is some exciting news. In 2020, Kristen was named one of the top 20 in advocacy by the Advocacy Association. Her past experiences include working on Capitol Hill at a small lobbying firm uh, and on many, many campaigns. But she is also the first dance teacher to ever appear on the Voices in Advocacy show. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my pleasure to welcome Kristen to today's show. Thank you for welcoming me. And I'm excited to be the first dance teacher on the show. That's pretty incredible. <laughs> you know, I would have you do the two-step, but I'm just not sure it would uh, <laughs> it would correlate uh, in, in the audience right now. But let's, yeah, now let's get started on this. Um, hey, can you brief, briefly explain the importance of credit unions? So credit unions are very important. They are not-for-profit financial cooperatives. So anyone who joins a credit union is a member and an owner of the credit union. Credit unions are run by a volunteer board of directors. They don't get paid and they are elected by the entire membership. Um, there are 120 million credit union members across the country. And to be become part of a credit union and a member, you need to have a common bond. And common bonds can be things like employers. Um, anyone who's worked on Capitol Hill knows that there's a credit union on the House side and a credit union on the Senate side. Or it can be a small geographic area like a certain zip code or a homeowners association. Or it can be membership in a group such as a church or attending a university or becoming a member of a labor union. So that's essentially what a credit union is and why credit unions are so important is their not-for-profit status means that if there are earnings in any year, 
those earnings are immediately returned to the credit union members. This usually allows credit unions to have better loan rates and you know, help a lot of people who are trying to buy their first car or get their you know, first home. And it, we have several stories of you know, people who are 18 years old, starting their freshman year of college, and they need a loan for a laptop and the credit unions are able to make that happen for them. Excellent, excellent description of all that. I was looking through uh, and doing some research for this, uh, and I am based in uh, the state of Arizona, and I looked up that there are 41 different credit unions in Arizona, and I, I of course, had no clue that there were that many uh, different credit unions in, in the state, and the diversity of the type of credit unions that there are. And so with that, you serve different groups. How would you uh, kind of describe the governance structure uh, because uh, you you do serve those different uh, different groups that are out there? Um, so most of our work is based upon helping improve the financial lives of 120 million Americans who are credit union members. And we do that through advocacy at the federal and the state level. You can have state charter credit unions and federally chartered credit unions um, our main regulator for the federal level is the National Credit Union Administration. So in addition to working with Congress to have positive legislative outcomes, we're also working with our regulator. Now times that by 50. We're doing the exact same things at the state level. And what we try to do is make sure that credit union priorities get pushed through legislatively or regulatorily. We also are working on reducing regulatory burden with the creation of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau after Dodd-Frank. Regulatory burden for financial institutions has probably doubled if not more. Uh, we're always looking to enhance information security at credit unions. I think anyone who's used a debit card or a credit card in the past 10 years has had at least one data security scare or had to have at least one card reissued. And like I mentioned earlier, we're always looking to expand and protect the credit union powers and opportunities. So the purpose of CUNA states, quote, uh, advocacy lies at the heart of everything we do for our members, end quote. Can you kind of take a deeper dive uh, into, into what that means or, or how the outcome gets produced because of that? Sure. One thing that was stated by our former CEO and former Congressman Dan Micah when I first started at CUNA was credit unions were legislated into existence in the 1930s. They can be legislated out of existence. So in addition to playing offense and trying to advance credit union priorities, we're also playing defense to make sure that credit unions get to keep operating as not-for-profit, that credit unions are able to do the same things as other financial institutions, including small business lending, student loans, mortgages, et cetera. So because we were legislated into existence, we are always aware that we could be legislated out. And that essentially is the heart of everything we do at CUNA. Sure, yeah, one way or the other, let's either make it better or let's, let's pr protect what we have with our large, large group of members that we have throughout the, uh, throughout the country. So at the beginning, I teased about a program called MAP, and that's M-A-P, 
P for people listening. Tell us about MAP. So MAP is our member activation program. And one of the things that we spent a few years studying with grassroots is I, Kristen Prather, can send an email to my advocates and they don't know what a CUNA is. They don't know who Kristen is. But a credit union member, they know that Judy Bennett, CEO of Blue Federal Credit Union, they know Judy. They remember when Judy was, you know, working her way up the ladder. She helped them get their first home loan. So we discovered through research that when people get an email from their credit union directly, they're more likely to take action and we're more likely to help them move up the advocacy ladder from just sending an email to potentially attending a teletown hall or to meeting with their member of Congress. And it has actually improved our advocacy efforts immensely. Um, in a recent MAP campaign, we gained over 200,000 new advocates. And this is all through our credit unions being able to take plug and play information. So we write up an action alert, we make it look pretty, but we also keep space in there for credit unions to insert their individual headers, graphics, et cetera. And then they send that information out to their members and the open rates and the click-through rates are usually higher than any of their marketing materials. Um, that's not always the case, but it usually is. And this has allowed us to, you know, in the past eight weeks, I literally doubled my advocacy list. Wow. <laughs> 200,000 more. Yep. And it's that... all because people have a strong bond with their credit union. <laughs> yeah, that's incredible. I love that. Oh, my God. I love, I mean... <laughs> I wish you could have seen my reaction because I had this big, I mean. It was a jaw drop moment. I, I, and it I, was look, a... like, I look like the guy in uh, the Van Gogh painting uh, with his, his, his face was just so, so distorted with, with the, that 200,000 new advocates. That's incredible. So I kind of heard a little bit of the type of tools that you're using. Uh, but what tools are you using to educate members on the issues uh, and whether those tools are, you know, live events or, or uh, at state and local level or webinars or videos or emails or fact sheets or infographics <laughs> or what, whatever. Tell me about that. We do all of the above. Um, <laughs> all see. of the above. It's one of those. And I like to describe grassroots and advocacy as you have a toolbox. And when you have a toolbox, you have hammers, you have nails, you have screwdrivers, you have ratchets, you have all these different tools. And certain people need a different tool in order to get more educated on advocacy. If I'm talking to general credit union members, like I mentioned with the MAP campaign, sending an email that explains the issue, how it will impact the credit union member, that's enough. And it usually will get, you know, an advocate to take action. If I'm talking to a credit union staff member who's probably at like the teller level or the mid-level, doing a webinar with them or doing an individual training with them or their staffs, those are great. We have a, another program called the Political and Grassroots Network. Yeah, Political and Grassroots Network, PGN. We have a lot of acronyms at CUNA. <laughs> and so that's a group of credit union professionals 
who have expressed an interest in learning more about advocacy. So we host quarterly meetings with them and you know, train them up the advocacy ladder. And these people can be C-suite or they can be just tellers who really wanna get to you know, get involved in politics and advocate on behalf of credit unions. And wow. then for more of the C-suite level and even mid-level, we have uh, in-person trainings. Uh, this end of February, beginning of March, we will be doing the in-person CUNA Governmental Affairs Conference. So first live event with over 5,000 people in two years. I'm looking forward to seeing my friends at GAC very, very much. Um, and yeah, so we do in-person emails, webinars, you name it. You just have to pick the right tool for the advocate. And when we had to go virtual with COVID, we didn't miss a beat because we'd already been doing some virtual meetings. Excellent, excellent stuff. Wow, there's so there's so many places I can go now uh, in this in this conversation. You talked about your political grassroots network, uh, and is is that where? Well, no. Let me let me let me let's strike that. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna go down a different path. You have two hundred thousand new recruits. How did you recruit them? I mean, you can't, I, I would be shocked if you told me we sent an email and 200,000 people more stormed, stormed so the barricade. That's the beauty of the member activation program. I didn't recruit them. Their credit unions did. Their credit unions sent you know, a message out to their members saying, hey, this is a scary thing that could happen. You should definitely you know, go yell at your congressperson about this and 200,000 people did. So that's one reason why we spent a lot of time researching and working out the MAP program so that instead of you know me yelling at an advocate and they don't know who I am from anyone else, they're looking at who's this CUNA person? CUNA, what is this? But with the member activation program and those individual credit unions going out to them, there's a bond there people love their credit unions. So when a credit union tells you something is important, people are going to take action. And what we also do is after we, you know, have people take action, we go back out to our member activation program credit unions and say, here was the outcome, here's what happened, and here's a sample email you can send to everybody. And we also can pull lists through our software system because we require people to enter in their credit union name and we can tell the MAP credit unions, here are the people who responded so that they're not blasting everyone in their membership database. That's right. Yeah, yeah. now they go back with the thank you of this is what happened or here's what, here's what the results of that was. And, and you earlier indicated how uh, it's their ability to be able to brand it with their own credit union uh, with, all, with all of the brand uh, assets that are a part of that, that yeah, that, that makes a whole lot of sense. Uh, and then you talked uh, a little bit about how you, you then train some other people uh, as, as grassroots volunteers. And, and is that what's part of that political grassroots network? Yes, that is what's part of it. Um, training the political and grassroots network. Uh, prior to COVID hitting, we have planned out a whole series of trainings for credit union advocates and then the pandemic hit. So we're still looking at ways to roll those out hopefully next year. Um, 
but we do a lot of in-person trainings during our governmental affairs conference. We also, in partnership, CUNA isn't just federal level, we also have state level associations that we call leagues. And we work with their, our leagues at their annual meetings to also do trainings for credit union professionals down at the state level. And one of the reasons we're so successful, honestly, is because of our partnership with the leagues. The leagues are able to take the lead on a lot of things. And sometimes when they need help, you know, we'll parachute in and help them out. <laughs> exactly. So because of the leagues, we're able to do, you know, more focused training. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you'd spoken to a group of Louisiana credit unions once. And Louisiana credit unions are very different from Massachusetts credit unions. Exactly. So when you have that league staff in Louisiana that can talk to the needs and the concerns of the Louisiana credit union leagues and the staff in Massachusetts that can speak to those needs and those concerns, you're going to be more effective at advocacy. Without, without question, which leads me into something else that you guys are doing, and that's called Project Zipco. Yes. So Project Zip Code is essentially our census program for credit unions. It's a program that credit unions can run and it matches credit union members to their federal legislative districts, their state legislative districts, and their county. Um, because we've had this program running since 2001, PZC is 20 years old. I just realized that. Um, <laughs> Happy anniversary, Project Zip Code. Exactly. <laughs> so because we can, you know, run this program um, and how we built it with our vendor, it fully complies with Gramm-Leach-Bliley and other privacy laws. We can go into any legislative office at the federal or the state level and with a good degree of accuracy tell a congressperson, you have 55,000 credit union members living in your district. You have 110,000 credit union members living in your district. And when you get those numbers into the head of a lawmaker or their staff, suddenly it's not just, you know, Joe credit union person. It's, oh, there are a lot of Joe credit union people. Yeah, it's Betty down the street. It's, uh, it's Susie who goes to church. It's uh, when I walk the dog at the park, uh, you know, it's Fred with his dog. It's, you know, it's all the people that they know at that point. Exactly. It's suddenly like, oh, and when you look at our national total of 120 million members, you know, a lot of people are kind of like, wait, how, how do we have that? I didn't know you had that many credit union members. And well, we do. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and, and I had mentioned earlier about knowing the number of credit unions. I was kind of shocked with just the number in my particular state, but I was also shocked even by the number of employees then. So you take that and you can talk about the number of actual businesses, you can talk about the number of employees, and then you can talk about the number of people that are served, that are a part of that, that, that you know, have uh, different financial assets due to the fact that those organizations exist. I think, I think it's very, very smart to be able to do that. Yeah. And, and I think in your case, naturally, when you have that 120 million, uh, taking those numbers probably shocks everybody when they walk in the office and, and share that. Yes. And because we can personalize it to project zip code through the district data, it's just 
that 120 million, you know, a legislator can't say, oh, well, I don't think I have that many of them in my district. We can go, surprise, here's how many we have. Um, and that, that's been huge for us and super, super helpful. Yeah. Uh, how many people are in your kind of advocacy shop? How many come under, because the, the, it sounds to me like the volume of the work that you guys are doing is massive. And, and how many people are in the shop? I would say that in the advocacy shop, it's probably around 50 people. And that is our regulatory lobbyists, our legislative lobbyists, our economic and statistics team, the political team, which includes grassroots and PAC, and the state affairs team. So we're, we're a pretty big shop. Um, we are the largest credit union trade association. So, and that's just CUNA proper. When you get down to our partnerships with the leagues, there are a couple hundred people yeah. working for credit union issues. And yeah, I mean, every time we meet in person, I'm surprised at how many of us there are, which is always great. Absolutely, it's great. It's going to make some people listening to this show incredibly jealous. I can tell you that. Now, <laughs> let's, uh, let's get a little philosophical here for a second. What's the first thing that comes to mind when you even hear the word advocacy? So for me, it is education. And I know that sounds a little bit weird, but I think education, you have to educate your advocates in order for them to really help your cause, help your issue, et cetera. So education is the first word that comes to mind. That may also come to mind because I teach dance classes. And, you know, you can't do a ballet turn without learning first, okay, here's the foundations in order to do it. So I always look at advocacy as more of an education journey, and it can start with a simple email, but eventually I want to get my advocates to the point where they're calling up legislator XYZ to have a meeting. You know, I, 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 could agree, I couldn't agree with you more as someone who goes out and, and that's part of what I do in, in, in my life is help educate people on, on advocacy. And people will say, well, it's not that hard. I mean, once you know the basics, it's no big deal. But that's like saying to a salesperson, well, once you, once you know how to say, will you buy this? That's all you need to know. No, you, it, it gets more and more sophisticated. And in fact, the more you do it, the more you realize you need stronger and stronger structures and that's why there are so many people out there teaching people how to do sales because mm -hmm. they're not really doing it effectively. And so I commend the work that you folks are doing in regards to educating people because there are also different levels. It's, al it's almost like uh, equating that to a, uh, a university program. You may start off with somebody at a 101 or even remedial, uh, and then you work up to the 401 level. Uh, uh, and and that's then when you go from being a grass tops to being a grassroots, and, and the and the difference that goes goes in between between that. Uh, I think that's excellent work that you guys are doing. So, with that, do you think it's important for advocates to stick to the script that they've been given, or inject personal stories? when meeting with elected officials? The more personal stories you can relate to the issues, the better. 
Um, we've seen time and time again in research, our own research and research through other parties that personalized stories are the things that stick with legislators. And I can go in and say, you know, if you pass bill A, it's going to help small businesses. But what's really important is if someone can come in and say, look, if bill A passes, this is going to allow me to buy another boat for my fishing operation. And by buying another boat for my fishing operation, I'm going to be able to include, you know, that's five new jobs. That's huge right. in my area. So the more personalized a story that can address the issue or the bill or the talking points, the better. And one of the things that we've started doing at CUNA, and this was born before COVID, was we're trying to collect videos of personalized credit union stories. And on our website, advancingcommunity.com, you'll be able to see some of those credit union stories. And they range from, like I mentioned earlier, an 18-year-old who needed a personal loan to get a laptop for college to a woman who was able to keep her restaurant open during the pandemic thanks to a PPP loan that her credit union was able to provide. So those personalized stories definitely make a difference when you're meeting with lawmakers, especially if you can relate it to an issue or to an individual bill. Yeah, it, it you know, oftentimes when I do this show, I reflect back on, you know, what you as the guest are saying to different, different things. And many years ago, I had a, uh, I had a client that uh, members of the state legislature uh, really didn't want uh, additional tourists coming in to the location because, you know, they're going to cloud our roads and they're going <laughs> to, you know, we're not going to be able to get restaurant reservations. And we're not going to be able to do all this and that. And what I ended up doing was taking all of the legislators, the rules were different then, but I took all the legislators and I sat them on a plane at the airport. And I said, now you've just arrived into town. Now look out the window. Look at the people handling the baggage. Look at the people doing this. Those are jobs because you arrived in this town. And then I you know, took them out and passed the skycaps and passed you know, everybody else that was working at the airport and on the buses and out to a, you know, to a resort and talked about every job along the way and then would point out the stores and say, guess what? Those people that had the jobs had the money to go into those stores and to buy things. <laughs> yeah. And all of a sudden, these massive light bulbs came on about, we don't want it. And I kept telling them, and that's new money. That's money that wasn't already circulating within this economy. And now you have new money coming in. So the ability to storytell is phenomenal in that. But I often find, which is scary a little bit, Sometimes organizations say, here's the script. That's all I want you to say, period. And then at the end, I want you to ask for this. And that's it. And that, I think, has its time and its place. And the time and its place is if you have your own contracted lobbyists who can do that. But if it's a member, you know, and they're meeting with their lawmaker, the lawmaker wants to hear the personal stories from home. They've probably been, you know... They've been stuck in D.C., as the congressman I worked for always said. He's like, I'm stuck in D.C., but he wants to hear the stories about what's happening in Canton, Ohio, what's happening in 
you know, right outside Chicago, Illinois, or certain other areas. They want to know what's going on back home. And if you can relate that personal story to an issue that's important to your organization, all the better. I always, I always use this as an example because most people can relate because they know that, at least reputationally, Ronald Reagan was viewed as the great communicator, you know? And, and Ronald Reagan would, you know, maybe say, well, I got a letter from seven-year-old Johnny the other day. Mm-hmm. Boom. And then he would tell Johnny's story. And then he would tie it together with whatever issue he wanted because of Johnny's story. And any good elected official wants Johnny's and Susie's stories. So yeah, that they, they can do the same. Yeah, they want to be able to, you know, tell the story of, oh, we passed this bill and now... Jonathan was able to expand his fishing business and get a new boat. And he brought five new jobs. Those are, those are the stories that make your organization look good and they make the legislator look good. So always try to find that symbiotic relationship with, you know, how can we help each other? So you run a, you know, you're a part of a really good, sophisticated advocacy shop within the organization. And I know that you use technology to be able to help you uh, with, with some of the results that you drive with the tools that you use. But I wanted to ask is, do you think technology is taking over or enhancing personal grassroots engagement? So I'm of the opinion it's enhancing it. And the reason I say that is, when we did our virtual GAC and we've done some virtual fly-ins at the state level, people who may not have been able to attend a meeting before because it was in person, they can now log onto their computer and meet with legislators sometimes for the first time. Um, Zoom meetings and virtual meetings with lawmakers, they're not going anywhere. So embrace the technology, but also be prepared to make it conversational like you're in person or you're sitting, you know, at a conference table with the lawmakers. So I think it's enhancing what we do and it's giving people who previously didn't have the opportunity to really advocate in person. It's giving them an opportunity to advocate virtually. And, you know, one thing I still remember from a few years ago, a uh, pollster came in and said, there are kids who are using their phones to talk to lawmakers. People are using the technology that's here, whereas 10 years ago, that wasn't an option. So I think it's enhancing and it's opening the doors to new advocates of all flavors, colors, shapes, and sizes. Yeah, I, I, I think the price of entry now is so easy and so short due to, due to the technology. My only Worry is that I, and I see this with some organizations, all they do is rely on certain tools and you clearly indicated that you're not relying on just those certain tools. So I'm not putting you in that category in any way, shape or form, but I've seen other organizations do that. And to me, I think all they're doing is creating noise and not really being influential. You know, yeah, we're screaming loud, but is anybody hearing us over everything else? It's the shrieking monkeys versus roaring lions. There you go. I love that. 
Well, and as, and as a proud Penn State Nittany Lion, <laughs> I like I like that I like that statement. Uh, <clears throat> I'm often called a poli sci geek. For my uh, my my wife calls me that all the time. For my love of political science and, and kind of all things political, what made you select American politics and history as your major in college? Um, so I was a political junkie growing up. Um, I one of my first memories I got to leave first grade early to go see then campaigning George H W Bush at the Akron Canton Airport like six years old, my dad has me on his shoulders. And I was kind of hooked ever since then. Um, I helped my dad out on school board campaigns. I helped out on school levies. I volunteered on a 2002 Senate campaign. It just, I, I've been hooked ever since I was little. And that in large part is thanks to my parents who always stressed the importance of learning about the political issues, learning about the candidates, voting for you think is best. Um, many of our childhood vacations were to historical sites and places. So, and then they would tie that to, okay, well, we're at Gettysburg. Here's what happened here. How do you think we got to this? So my parents wow. gave a really great history and civics education from a very young age. And it just stuck with me and it, it's now what I do for a living. You know, it's funny. Uh, as you were talking, I couldn't, I can't point to one thing, but at 13, I got involved. At 13, I started working, walking door to door with candidates and handing out flyers for them. And, and you know, being in front of uh, manufacturing plants as people were coming in and out of work and handing out flyers and the candidate and, and so on and so on. And I can't specifically say what got me to that point, but boy, I knew early on the hook was in and it was in deep and there was no, no use, no use fighting this one, go with the flow. Uh, yeah. At age, I want to say it was around the same time or a couple of years later, I was, there was a candidate for state house who my parents knew and my grandparents knew and I'm there, you know, walking in a parade with the candidate handing out like little flyers and candy to people just because that's, you know, that was what you did. And that's it was, yeah, I, I, yeah, same age, very young. And it's like, I love doing this. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and when we all realize uh, the human side of who these candidates are and, and what they do and what their real intent is. Uh, uh, as opposed to kind of what we see flash across the the bottom bar of a, of a news feed, uh, then, you know, you, you get the bug of people really want to do the right thing for people and, and to go from there. So personally for you, at this stage of your career, where do you go for additional education? Um, so for additional education, I like to attend the Public Affairs Council Advocacy Conference. I attend a lot of the webinars and prior to COVID, the in-person events sponsored by the Advocacy Association. And, you know, I, I'm constantly asking my friends, hey, where are you getting good information from? What is the latest 
you know, tool we can use? What are you seeing in other associations? So there are individual groups where I'll go to their trainings. Um, another one that we've done recently was the Congressional Management Foundation, who they helped us out a lot with, hey, here's how things are going on the Hill now. Um, so those are my primarily primary places, but I also like asking others in the industry. If you aren't sure where to go to further your advocacy or grassroots education, just ask some of your friends or, you know, scroll through LinkedIn and see what people are talking about. And hopefully you'll find something that works for you. Uh, great, great advice there. Uh, what's the best professional tip you ever received in your career? Hmm. Trying to think of one because there are so many that are popping yeah. into my mind. Um, I would say be honest with yourself. And that came to me from my first boss here in Washington, D.C. And she said, you always have to be honest with yourself, because if you don't, this town being D.C., it can chew you up and spit you out. So be honest with yourself. If you love working for your company and you love the cause you're fighting for, you'll never work a day in your life. And that's pretty much how I feel about working for credit unions. So be honest with yourself and stay true to yourself and enjoy the ride. Excellent, excellent stuff. Any final thoughts you want to add? Um, I will say for those people who are now interested and in love with credit unions as much as I am, you can find a credit union for you at yourmoneyfurther.com. So feel free to go there and find a new credit union. And if you would like any more information about CUNA, our website is cunacuna.org. And if you would like to get in touch with me, you can just find me on LinkedIn or feel free to send me an email at kprather at cuna.coop. Wow, you did it all. You just laid it all out there for us. That was wonderful. Now that's that is a great wrap up of today's wonderful conversation that we've had here with Kristen Prather, State Director, Grassroots Programs at the Credit Union National Association, known as CUNA. Thank you, Kristen, for being on the show today and all the best. Thank you. Let's face it. Today's advocacy arena is just plain noisy. Organizations are stretched. You need every advantage to make sure your issue gets the attention it deserves and your voice heard. The RAP Index is the best way to do just that by finding your stakeholders' relationships and engagement power. Get past the noise. Know who your people know. Go to rapindex.com. That's rapindex.com and tell them Roger sent you for a special offer. If you like today's podcast, head over to where you find your podcast and subscribe to the Voices and Advocacy podcast. A big thank you to today's guest. I appreciate your time and the unwavering passion for advocacy you have. Well, that's it for this episode of Voices in Advocacy. Remember, you have the power to be an effective, influential advocate. Now go out 
and make it a better world. We hope you enjoyed today's Voices and Advocacy podcast and look forward to you joining us again next week. To learn more about Voices and Advocacy, go to our website, voicesinadvocacy.com.